Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 73, The Darker Side of Zen, Institutions Defining Reality. The Zen institution has a darker side that has to do with ways in which the institution itself grants legitimacy and authority to its leaders. While the practice of Zen is extremely valuable, many of us aren't aware of the ways that the establishment itself defines reality for us. This is part two of a two-part series. Looking at political ideas often is very fruitful when you're trying to look at religious stuff. That there's a kind of uh, mirroring back and forth in some way if you change terminology in that. But um, uh, reading Chomsky, uh, Noam Chomsky, a political commentator mm-hmm. uh, and linguist, he uses a term called use, useful doctrinal fabrications. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, it's rampant in the religious stuff. So um, one of the things that we have to look at is this mythology of, of the, um, what is the Zen model, the standard model, right? Which I think is a useful doctrinal fabrication. But anyway, the story is that uh, Buddha Shakyamuni was talking to this large assembly, and at one point he holds up a flower, and Mahas Kajyapa was one of the five, uh, 500 or 1,000 people in the assembly, only he smiles and the Buddha recognizes that he understands this what what later came to be called the silent teaching mm-hmm. and so he passes his uh, his lineage to Mahakasyapa and he talks about it mentions something about having the true Dharma Rai etc etc and then that mythology is that Mahakasyapa uh, transmits to Ananda, the Buddha's nephew, and so on and so on through um, 28 Indian um, generations. And then it goes to China with Bodhidharma, and then there's six Chinese patriarchs. So in this scheme that was created, it's um, one, one, um, one master per generation. And then after the sixth genera- six patriarch, Wenang, in um, in uh, Ch- in China, it becomes a multi-linear branch and spreads all over China and goes to Korea and Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, um, this is uh, total fabrication, though. It actually the I- the model really started to be developed in China in the seventh and eighth century, when genealogy was really important to the literati and the elites of China. I see. So that was an idea, and one of the things, and it took, even at that, it still took another few hundred years, probably till the 10th century, before the, uh, how many generations you really needed to get that much time, and there were many, you know, big holes in this thing, and right. the whole thing is just really constructed, you right. know, and, and if uh, some of the early stuff in China, you know, they were just stealing uh, lineages from each other, seeing what what seemed to work, right? What was a good story? How do we connect this guy with that guy? Uh, the Indian lineages are pretty much const- just made up. Um, at one point, they weren't. They, they were only like I don't know, ten or twelve generations to get from 
in, from the Buddha to China, and then they realized, well, that's not enough enough people. Right? <laughs> they had to start filling it in. And They'd that, have to be living pretty long lives. <laughs> everyone was everyone really was healthy <laughs> and lived a long life. So uh, it's important, and that, that that's just the doctrinal foundation fabrication. But it's kind of like the key and 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 the base of the legitimacy of the Zen master and his authority, right? Right. So now some people start to say, well, you know, so they don't really pay attention to it, although it's repeated over and over and over. And um, I did a survey once, and a number of people wrote to me just exactly that. But, you know, this is the last in the, in the general, you know, last in the, in the, in the lineage for 2,500 years, going back to Shakyamuni Buddha. And uh, someone else wrote, I saw in a book recently, how their teacher was the 78th in the lineage from Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, on and on like that. So it it is believed, you know. Right. And, and it's a strong mythologizing story, but it's really um, what, what Chomsky calls a useful doctrinal fabrication. Right. Um, but the key in this thing is that there's this Dharma transmission ceremony and that should not be that, that that really has to be paid attention to because um, it really does have dramatic effects right so it changes um, people's understanding of the transmitted person right so now the transmitted person is made to be the representative for the institution he has to be directed um, spoken to as uh, Roshi so-and-so or Zen master so-and-so he has this honorific title mm-hmm. uh, p- people have seen him publicly made to be the representative of the institution along with this whole belief in lineage and having the Buddha mind because that's the I that's the story that the Buddha mind is what's transmitted um, other sects of uh, Buddhism in China base themselves on um, texts, different texts. Zen said, no, we are the heart or the mind of the Buddha, right? So this is a big public ceremony where the older master is saying, this is the new person that embodies that and becomes the spokesman for the uh, uh, institution and speaks for Zen now. Um, It also changes the transmitted person because now all of a sudden people are addressing him differently and bowing to him and he has is to play he has a new role so um he kind of feels obliged in a way to adopt that role and to play that role so there's a whole powerful thing that takes place with this public ceremony of uh dharma transmission one of the key aspects i think of this one of the really important things is that once this happens the person that's transmitted, he talks for the institution. Mm-hmm. He represents the institution. He's the delegate of the institution. And his words carry all that weight. You know, words and, and roles and institutional roles have, have weight. And so it carries all of that authority and legitimacy of being the transmitted person who has the Buddha mind in this 2,500 years of unbroken lineage, right? Right. But that, at the same time, 
condemns everyone else to only having personal opinions. So there's an enormous imbalance set up now. So when Joe Schmo says something, well, he's really only given his personal opinion. But when Roshi so-and-so talks, he has institutional authority. He has uh, legitimacy. He has a whole history backing him up as the delegate and spokesman for all of Zen. So it's a very strong imbalance that, right. that takes place. Right. Um, and and to see how this stuff gets repeated. Um, if if we um, go back and look at the you know Zen mind beginner's mind, I like to go to that book. I think Suzuki's talks in it are terrific. I think Baker's introduction is another story. Um, in that introduction, he says. What the teacher really offers the student is living proof that all this talk of the Zen master and the seemingly impossible goals of Zen can be realized in this lifetime. Hmm. Well, <laughs> essentially he's saying that the Roshi or the Zen master is this perfected being. Right. There's no half Zen master. There's no like, well, he's pretty okay. That's not what he's saying. So he's directing people, this is how you see the Zen master. That, that Zen can totally be realized fully in this lifetime because here's Roshi Cho, you know, Roshi Cho in front of you. <laughs> so when you put all of this together, right, all these endless stories, the, the koans, the, the rituals, the, the bowing, and there's so much stuff that gets embodied in, in chanting and in, uh, in, um, going to interviews, uh, addressing the person. Um, these kind of writings, the talks of these senior students, on and on, that that's how this thing is transmitted. That's why it has so much power. Um, even I know if uh, um, there's a book, Shoes Outside the Door, which I've used a lot about the Dick Baker and the San Francisco Zen Center. Mm -hmm. And um, in there you get a real good picture how powerful um, this, this, this stuff is. Even uh, um, in some, there's a few episodes in there where new students <clears throat> look at Baker and they see, hey, this is crazy behavior. You know, he's, this is nothing, right? Because they haven't been fully indoctrinated yet. They're still new, so they can still see things a little. So they go to older students. I think in one case, one guy goes to Reb Anderson, who was like, you know, really begging Baker to give him Dharma transmission, right? And he said, Jesus, Reb, Baker seems like, you know, he's off the walls with all of this stuff. And I think he said, he says something like, um, well, you're not enlightened. You don't understand. Ba you don't understand. Baker is is uh, dharma transmitted from Suzuki Roshi. Mm -hmm. So you just can't understand what he's doing because you're not enlightened yet. And it's and and it essentially it becomes a sign of saying something. Becomes a sign of your immaturity in practice, and it's uh, it's it's presented as though there's something negative about you, Jesus. You know, you really didn't advance enough to see what looks like craziness to you is really enlightened behavior. And that's what he's told by the old, by the, essentially the second oldest student there, or the second most uh, powerful student there. 
So really there have been, I mean, I've certainly having read a couple of these books and read, reading your paper, there have been several episodes with plenty of Zen teachers in America where, yes, yeah, sexual misconduct was happening, financial uh, misconducts happening, interpersonal misconduct. I mean, all sorts of breaches of ethical Alcoholism. behavior. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we don't have to get so far into the specifics because it's pretty clear that that stuff's happening. But, uh, I mean, and it's pretty clear that what's enabling it is what you were talking about earlier, which is mm-hmm. these ideals that get communicated and adopted through these structures and these stories. Uh, Noam Chomsky's notion of the, I uh, can't remember what, what it's called, the uh, du- yeah, uh, useful doctrinal fabrications. The UDF. That's right. And so I'm wondering uh, if you could share what what you think the fallout of, for people and for the teachers themselves, is when these uh, ideals are adopted and then they don't hold up or the community comes tumbling down. What's the fallout for people, including, you know, including the teachers themselves? Okay. Well, sometimes the fallout, if there's a real scandal, right, that's generally very painful. Right. right, and so some people leave Zen permanently. They just don't want to do it anymore. It's you know that bubble's been shattered, and I think that's really unfortunate because I think um, I mean I've seen as much of this as probably most people. I wouldn't say others haven't seen more screwy stuff than I have, but I still think the practice, the core practice, the core teaching, what's there is worthwhile pursuing right, and right. staying with. But, you know, if you really... Some people, it's just too shattering when this bubble gets burst that they put so much into the teacher and the Zen master and that. Um, that um, they leave. They leave permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, others have... They don't leave permanently. They go to someone else or they look for another group and... Uh, but they, they just don't trust the teacher again, right? I knew a woman like that that really got pretty beat up by Shimano. I mean, not physically, but, you know, psychologically, emotionally, because mm-hmm. whatever. And um, she stayed away from Zen for a number of years, and then she knew that I liked this Chinese group, and she started going, but uh, she was just really gun-shy to accept the, um, someone as a teacher. Right. So that's right. another. Uh, some people, um, you know, people write to me because they, 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 after some stuff happens, they um, um, they're looking on the internet for stuff, and one of the things they find my papers. Right. So I've heard a lot of stories. There was uh, uh, one woman that uh, extremely bright, um, um, successful business lady, right. And her husband's an academic, so it's a you know it's a kind of intellectually bright family, both very high achievers. And she was involved with some guy, and and she saw how crazy it was, and then uh, decided to leave. And he would tell her that he was that she was breaking all the faith and trust he had in her. And he kept spinning this stuff that. She she was leaving because of all this, you know, him carrying on with students and causing strife between couples and, you know, et cetera, stuff like that, and repeatedly, repeatedly doing it over years. And um, um, 
he would be able to fool her and she'd send me his letters and I'd say, look, don't you see what he's saying? He's flipping the table on it. He's done da 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 And then he's saying, you really disappointed me. You don't trust me. And I had so much faith in you. I thought you were going to be a, you know, a, a, a leader here and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and she was so, you know, this is an extremely bright, verbal woman couldn't read what was going on. We used to go over it time after time after time. So it's it's so, what I'm trying to say is you can't imagine how powerful this stuff is. Right, the habitus that you that you'd That's right. Mm-hmm. And and this idea, you know, one thing that I've come to, to realize, and you can, I, I just always say it to myself and to other people, you can't emphasize the, enough the power that institutions have to define reality. Mm. Once you buy into one of these um, situations, that is so strong. It just, it's, 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 I just, I don't understand how it happens and how it works, but it's there. And if you underestimate that, you're going to be wrong every time. It's just, um, it defines reality. They have that power. I don't know why, but they do. And people seem to um, um, almost be programmed to to, uh, to 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 accept authority figures. Right. And it seems like there's something that's kind of invisible about institutional or cultural power that it's hard to see. I mean, unless you say like you like you did, you, you actually witnessed it. But st- even then, it, it took it sounds like it took a lot of the academic study and really seeing some alternative perspectives on the whole thing and really being able to spending a good amount of time piecing this thing together to really see the structure and how it was affecting people so it's it's that's not something a, that's easy that's 100% true and the reason it's not easy <clears throat> because they their legitimating stories seem flawless you have to you know you remember they're developed over hundreds of years they've been refined so they see what works and then it's made to seem natural it's made to look like it's gravity you know when the apple falls from the tree no one goes hey how did that happen right (laughs) of course of course you bow to the zen master of course the zen master is fully enlightened being because he's the last in this lineage of unbroken Dharma transmitted people going back 2,500 years, or this woman who I, I just looked at the introduction to a book and how how affected she was that her teacher now she was she he, she became his Dharma heir that 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 my teacher was 78th in the lineage. Mm-hmm. Right? That that was um, how much more legitimacy can you need in all this? 2,500 years of unbroken history of mind-to-mind transmission, the mind of the Buddha that ordinary and regular people just can't understand. It's beyond their grasp and can. It's just such a strong, legitimating story. And then when you mix it with that it's relatively new here and you have Asian people coming over and they have, you know, the robes and all the paraphernalia and then... um, um, you know, the practice itself is powerful. You, you know, meditation is a very powerful thing, and is, you know, and it's a valuable tool. 
and and then doing the ceremonies and the bows and the incense and the chanting and all this so the whole thing becomes some kind of seamless web that's embodied that becomes into our body with the all the physical aspects to it not only mental and, and like that mm-hmm. and so this whole and then there's all this literature and these endless stories that are all um really charming and enigmatic and uh, they seem to have profundity uh on and on like that so it, it comes from every side that it's in the body it's in the mind it's in the practice it's in the story it's emotional and then in the end i think people um come to adore the um the the, the mass that they create so it's very hard to um it's a very powerful uh, story. Yeah, yeah. On top of which, if you go to question it and leave it, look what you're leaving. You're leaving the thing that makes life meaningful, makes sense. You're leaving uh, uh, a teacher. You're leaving leaving a social a social context, a place in a social setting. You're leaving. Um, it's very common if someone leaves a group, their friendships in that group dissipate disappear very quickly right um they, they're losing a play a, a, a place in a social context right so you know well you're not a old new student you're up in here and then there's the roshi and then there's older students and i'm maybe fourth level older student but there's still five and six or you know whatever the social setting is how so you have a whole, your whole world is ordered around this and made meaningful and sensible around this. It's not easy to leave. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and Pragmatic Dharma Provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.